the example that always comes to my mind is sitting at the traffic light after it's already turned green. And the guy behind me has to eh, eh, honk the horn to bring me back to reality. Well, where was I? I didn't pass out. I didn't go unconscious. I went somewhere, right? Lost in thought, daydreaming, drifting away. But I was unaware of the present moment, unaware of my circumstances. So I can be walking around with a genius IQ and not worth a tinker's damn if I'm living in this brain fog of unawareness. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning and welcome to Wisdom of the Soul, presented by the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Today's episode uh, is presented live, as always, Sunday mornings, 11 a.m. California time. But uh, if you're ever unable to join us live, reminding you that you can uh, watch the full video on YouTube or listen to an edited version as a podcast to your favorite podcast player run all the podcast apps and players and directories, aggregators and podcatchers. In any event, just search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Google, with YouTube, or with your podcast player. Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Our topic is choosing your choices. If someone were to ask me, Michael, in all the years you've been doing this, personal and spiritual development work, or personal and transpersonal development work, what is the one big concept? What's the the overarching, overriding, big enchilada here? What's, What's the takeaway? I would probably pause for a second and gather my thoughts, and then I'm sure I would say something about awareness, consciousness. It's the great mystery that we are conscious and sentient. There's a quote I've always liked by Albert Einstein, who is not only a scientist but a mystic as well who said anybody can know things. Any, I think he actually said any, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand them. Consider that for a second. How many things do we know, do we believe we know, think we know, convinced that we know that we know, but really don't fully understand? And how would you know if you understood? 
one of the basic precepts of wisdom is to be aware of how much you do not know. I mean, nobody likes a know-it-all, right? Know-it-alls are not very smart because they think they know it all. Very dangerous position. Best to be humble and say, well, I have an idea about this. I have this understanding. I have these beliefs. I have this experience. But there must be a lot here I do not know. That we may never know about the mysteries of the universe. So what is that element of understanding that lifts knowledge into true understanding? Gestalt, big pictures, the whole enchilada. It's awareness. And looking back, I'm sort of stunned, frankly, that I lived so much of my life unaware of the quality of awareness. I thought it was enough to be smart, to be intelligent, to be well-informed. But um, <laughs> consider, what good is intelligence if you're living in the fog of unawareness? The example that always comes to my mind is sitting at the traffic light after it's already turned green. And the guy behind me has to eh, eh, honk the horn to bring me back to reality. Well, where was I? I didn't pass out. I didn't go unconscious. I went somewhere, right? Lost in thought, daydreaming, drifting away. But I was unaware of the present moment, unaware of my circumstances. So I can be walking around with a genius IQ and not worth a tinker's damn if I'm living in this brain fog of unawareness. And guess what causes it? You know what causes it. It's stress. It's anxiety. It's the F word, fear. By any name, worry, doubt. A little bit of apprehension, slightly nervous, or full-on panic, or horror, or terror, or anything between any variation of confusion, uncertainty, and the physiological stress, starting with muscular tension that goes along with that. And not only does stress and overstimulation, anxiety, shatter and scatter awareness, mentally and emotionally, but it weakens and degrades the body's immune system. It's just bad mental health all the way around. And so, um, to be more aware. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do you develop that awareness muscle? Where is it in the brain? What exercises can we do to wake up, <laughs> to be more aware, to be more alert? You know, this uh, attempt by the right social reformers in America, well, there's social reformers on the left and the right, the culture war, using this word woke, uh, woke has nothing to do with politics or the culture war. It's an ancient concept that goes back to really uh, pre-religious uh, times of 
shamanism and paganism and the people who lived really close to the earth. And there's a wonderful story about uh, in the in the sutras about Buddha after he was enlightened coming through the woods and into the clearing where workers are clearing the forest and he had this uh, presence about him this charisma apparently he just shone like a star and had an immediate impact on everybody and they, whoa what is who's this and one shouted out are you a god and Reportedly, Buddha chuckles and says, no, 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 I'm not a god. Somebody shouts out, well, certainly you're a great avatar, you're a sage, you're a, you're a holy man of some sort. Religious person, Buddha says, no, 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 I'm, I'm none of those. And the third then shouts out, well, what are you? And Buddha says, awake, I'm awake, right here, right now. So this is the practice of mindfulness, technically defined as to see clearly and deeply what actually is right now, right here, in the present moment, and without judgment. To see things without judging is to see them purely. We always presume we have to judge and figure stuff out. And, you know, chase the problem and work through it to arrive at some sort of understanding. The idea that you could see most clearly and most deeply, most objectively, most fully, without judgment, is something that uh, merits your consideration. So we're going to talk about the center of awareness the decision-making faculty of the brain, where that exists, and how we can develop it. Okay, choosing your choices. Otherwise, we're left like most people, and like each of us, much of our days, acting reflexively. Sometimes it's called emotionally polarized, instead of a thought that is empowered by a feeling into an action, we just act out of the emotion reflexively, and then think about it later. So it's emotion, action, and then rationalization. <laughs> it's, it's often said we're less rational creatures than we are rationalizing creatures. Uh, but why did you do that? Well, because I felt like it, and then we get defensive. You know, you want to make something out of it? I've got to now defend my action, which I still haven't thought through clearly. Having considered my choices, much less the consequences of my behavior. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be present enough, awake enough, aware enough to examine our choices and consider the consequences before we initiate deliberately and purposefully a particular action, speaking or moving, <laughs> taking action, doing something. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's begin with an opening meditation. If you get comfortable in your, your furniture, your chairs, your meditation cushion, cross-legged on the floor or the bed, wherever you happen to be. The idea is to sit up straight and erect, but not rigid. So get a sense of yourself balanced, of your 
head around a little bit, your shoulders. That's a pretty advanced meditation, and uh, I think we've done it once before, maybe six or eight months ago. What you're doing is building the muscle that lives in the frontal lobes up here, right behind your forehead, that is in charge of the executive function of focus or paying attention and making decisions, examining your choices, considering the consequences of those choices, doing it in a playful and fun kind of way when you're not rushed, right? It's almost like an artist would approach a blank canvas or a, a block of clay or marble or something, you know, or a musician approach his or her instrument. Happiness comes from peace. Peace, peace of mind, comes from paying attention to what is right now. Whether it's wonderful, joyous, happy, yippee-io, or painful. There is no value in running, in worry, in fear. Fear is a nightmare. It's full of shadows that are exaggerated and distorted and untrue. And you will not find solutions and you will not resolve anything if we counsel fear, if we let our emotions run away with us. We have to find a balance, you see. It's not a, it's not a, a, a matter of repressing your feelings or allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by your feelings. You have to find that dynamic middle, and I say dynamic because the middle keeps moving. It's like a football game. You know, the end zones are only where you score. There's no game happening in the end zones. Everything and nothing. Good guys and bad guys, right and wrong. The game is played in the middle. That 100-yard pitch. And the middle is not always the 50-yard line. The middle could be the 60 or the... Well, there's no 60-yard line. <laughs> you know what I mean. could be a 60-40, a 30-70, a 70-30. Uh, down on the 10-yard line. That's all the middle. So when I say balance between repressing your feelings and being overwhelmed by your feelings, it's a dynamic. You've got to breathe and relax. And Remember those guys on the Ed Sullivan show or in the circus? They put the flat board on the round ball and balance and then usually juggle or do something else at the same time. Nice thing about the sphere is the, you know, if you take a big ball, like a beach ball or something, put your hand on top of the ball and roll it around. The thing about the sphere is it's always balanced. It's always centered. It's always above its own center of gravity. 
This is what the martial artist does, is maintain their center so they can't be thrown. Now, if it were a square or a triangle or any other odd shape, polygon, you could tip that such that when you let it go, it would fall one way or another. It's off balance. It's looking to find its center, right? But the ball you take your hand off, no matter where you put it, you take your hand off, it just sits there. It's happy. Be the ball. Be that centered in mind, body, and spirit at, at, at all times. That's where awareness lives. In the present moment, without judgment. And it's happening right here. <laughs> right behind your forehead. If you notice uh, gorillas and apes with whom we share 99% of our DNA, that's a little scary to, <laughs> to consider that we are 99% monkey. There's a few things that are different, like we've lost the gene for hair all over our bodies, or for the most part. You know, we're a little hairy. But uh, the big difference is the sloping forehead of the bonobo, the chimp, the gorilla. They have no frontal lobe. The, the, from the eye, you'll notice the from just above the eyebrow, it goes back on like a 30-degree angle. That Those frontal lobes are missing. Only human beings have these. These, these extended foreheads, these frontal lobes. And this is where the executive function takes place. This is where we get that second level of thinking. You know, that figure of speech, on second thought, I'd have you reflect on that a bit. What is that about? Nobody ever talks about that. What is that? Wait a minute, on second thought, that's our ability to reflect on our thinking. Animals don't do that. They don't wonder if dinner tonight is going to be the same thing they had last night. They don't wonder where the food's coming from. You know, they're very zen. They're very, very in the moment. And as I've said many times, and many other teachers as well, while there's great benefit in our learning to do that, there's also extraordinary benefit in our ability to use these higher forms of cognition to reflect on our thinking, to consider our choices, to consider the consequences of those choices, to play it out in your mind. Well, what if this? What if that? When I used to do sales seminars, I would teach salespeople to do this before any call. Whether it was a face-to-face, -face, telephone, email, text, whatever. You do not initiate that call without running it through in your mind's eye first. One of the basic principles of Maxwell Maltz's classic Psychocybernetics is that to a large degree, I don't want to overstate this, but to a large degree, you can't do anything that you're unable 
or unwilling to imagine yourself being able to do. Sometimes you might luck into doing something you didn't know you could do. But if you find yourself saying, well, I just can't imagine that. Your whole unconscious mind goes, okay, can't imagine it? No problem. We'll make sure it never happens. People say, what good is it being an optimist? I don't understand why you would want to be optimistic. Well, there, because <laughs> if, if you can't imagine it, you can't do it. Or the Walt Disney version of that is if you can dream it, you can do it. Think of how many Disney stories are about wishing on a star and your dreams come true. And that's not just fanciful fairy tale, help the kids go to sleep at night kind of thing. We are dreaming machines. And if your dreams are full of fear and, and they're nightmares and they're grotesque, distorted shadows, those are the seeds you plant. That's what you reap. That's what you, you reap what you sow. The universe only says yes. Those nightmares will be realized. Everything you worry about will be realized. remember asking Timothy Leary once. I interviewed Leary seven or eight times on the radio. Got to know him pretty well. And I said to Timothy once, uh, are you an optimist? And he, he, he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, well, of course. He said, what choice do I have? And I just thought that was brilliant. What choice do I have? Of course we're dreamers. And you can handle disappointment, right? It's okay if your dreams don't come true. Just stand up. Dust yourself off. The Japanese proverb... Fall down seven, stand up eight. Do it again. So these frontal lobes, this is where we learn to pay attention. It's an odd phrase, pay attention. We could call it focus. I really hesitate to call it concentration. Because we've been told all our lives to try to concentrate. As if it's an effort. Concentration is not an effort. You don't try to dream. You allow yourself to dream, to get lost. And I don't mean completely lost either, but it's a drifting, right? It's a letting go. But you bring your awareness along with you. You explore your options. You explore your choices. You play them through in your mind. In Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, I've mentioned this before, it's important. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space between what happens to you and what you do in response or as a reaction to it. There's actually a space. For most of us, most of the time, because we're so stressed, it's a very brief little flick of the shutter before we react. But you could open up that space between stimulus and response. It's a point of perception, of perspective, where you can begin to consider how many different ways can I look at this 
And how many different ways can I respond before I choose the ideal perspective and the ideal response for the greater good of all? And then we initiate that action. How cool would that be if we were awake enough and present enough that we did that all the time? Instead of just reacting reflexively to our emotions and shouting out, yeah, well, you too, and the horse you rode in. Oh, that was you. Out of my life. I'm done talking about it. Just sit down and take a breath and relax. It's remarkable how much time we waste trying to change what's already happened. And if you think you can control the world or control the stimulus... You must think you're a time traveler. How are you going to go back and fix what already happened by arguing about it and yelling about it and getting all upset? It already happened. It's already downstream. So why? What are you struggling with? A memory? Right? Where our power lies is in our ability not to have any influence what's all, uh, over the stimulus, or over, over what's already happened, but in the present moment, how do I look at this? How many attitudes can I choose from? How many moods or philosophies or, or, or ways of looking at it are available to me? Could I wax philosophical here and be more clever in the way I frame this? That's a good word, framing it. And then how many different ways can I respond? And what would happen if I responded this way? What might they say or do? What might be a consequence of that? And then you explore all of those and run the movie in your mind. Say, well, that, that, that would have some advantages here, but that might create some other problems over there. Let me rethink this. Hold on. On second thought, use this frontal lobe, this executive function, that we develop with meditation by paying attention. That's what meditation is, learning to pay attention through deep relaxation. To not only be smart and intelligent, but to understand. To go, <laughs> to use that intelligence to truly understand and then keep expanding that understanding. And then we initiate the action. So stimulus and response or cause and effect is really a trinity. It's stimulus perspective or perception and response. Cause meaning and effect. Open up that middle. That's, that's, that's where your power is, right? I'm going to offer you something that I like to call the choices chant. I wish I had a better name for it. I, I never really like Choices Chant. It's kind of a mantra. It's a little list of, of four questions. It's in my book, Fearless Intelligence. And it goes like this. And you may want to write these down. If you get, grab a pencil or a pen, I don't often suggest that you make a note. But the first is, I have choices. Just write that down. Number one. I have choices. Consider how groundbreaking that is 
in those times when you feel like you do not have choices. Or it doesn't even occur to you to choose a choice because you're so busy drowning or being suffocated by your emotions and feeling like a victim has to struggle to the surface to get a breath of air, to get your head above water. Choices is the last thing that may occur to you. So say, wait a minute, hold on here, cowboy. I have choices. Period. Number two, there are always more choices than are immediately apparent. What if that were true? I think you will find in time, soon enough, that it is. Of course, there are always more choices than are immediately apparent. There are more mysteries in this universe than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. There's a lot more going on here than you've even begun to imagine. Number one, I have choices. Number two, there are always more choices than are immediately apparent. Number three, my choices are in my perspective and my response. My choices are in my perspective and my response. Not in fighting the stimulus, which has already happened. I'm always baffled by the law and order people that say, we need more police to fight crime. Well, police can't do anything until the crime's already been committed. You say, you know, my husband's got a gun. He's threatening to shoot me. The cops show up and say, well, we'll talk to him, but we can't really do anything. Why? Because he hasn't shot you yet. Small comfort, right? Call the cops. After, they can only show up after the crime has been committed. How does that fight crime? There's no preventive element in there. And when you fight against the world, when you, st you struggle against what's been done to you, it's like, I'm sorry, the horse is already out of the barn. It's, what's the point? Getting all upset. Roll with it. Look instead at how many different ways can I frame this? How many different ways can I respond? That's where your power is. That's where the choices are. Stop struggling against what's already happened. And number four, and my choices are always for the greater good of all. The greater good of all concerned. The greatest good of the greatest number. However you wish to say that. Number one, I have choices. I mean, if you memorize this and incorporate this into your life, this can be very, very effective direction to move in when you're feeling freaked out and, and victimized and, and helpless, emotional. Wait a minute, I've got choices here. Isn't that crazy? How do we get to this point in our life and nobody telling us, you have choices. You have way more choices, far more choices, many more choices than you even realize. 
Your choices are not in controlling other people or the world around you or what's already happened. The stimulus is already done to you. Your choices are in how you look at it and how you choose to respond to it. And number four, you make those choices for the greater good of all, not just your selfish self. This is not a you or me world unless you, unless that's your outlook. It's a you and me world. Much safer. <laughs> more loving, healing. You like life? You want to live long? Be kind. Be good to yourself. Quick little aside here, and this is an aside. Now come back to it later on another date. I've been listening to a medical doctor. Uh, my wife, Doreen, turned me on to this woman because of her fascination, this medical doctor, Candace Pert, with uh, psychosomatic disorder and um, multiple personalities. And she, uh, she talks about the molecules of emotion and receptor sites on all the cells in your body. Every cell on your body has receptor sites for all the different hormones, and they're called neuropeptides. They're little uh, strands of protein that are the information agents in your body. And the allegory has always been kind of a lock and a key. You know, why does uh, uh, serotonin or insulin, for that matter, or any other hormone uh, find the receptor site? How does it how does it communicate that information? Do this, do that. And scientists say, well, it's sort of like a lock in the key. Well, how does the lock get into the key? I mean, how does the key get, <laughs> how does the key get into the lock on this molecular level, right? Is it gravity? Does it just jiggle around until it falls in? Well, it turns out that it's sympathetic oscillation. It's, uh, you know, you find the right note on the piano, and the snare drum in the corner vibrates all by itself. Or if you uh, tune a musical, uh, a stringed instrument against a reference tone, like a guitar player, you know, you'll have a reference tone and then bring the other string up to it. And as you get closer and closer, there's a beat between these two tones. It goes wow, 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 wow. And as you get closer, it goes wow, 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 until it's in perfect sync. Well, it appears, according to Dr. Pert's research with neuropeptides and the way they find the receptor site, that they're dancing and that it's this sympathetic vibration or oscillation that aligns on the molecular level. This is way past, this is way past cellular. This is all the way down to the molecular level. It's Shiva's dance. We think of ourselves as meat bodies and all the research, valuable though it may be, slicing up tissue and bone and putting it under the microscope, that's all dead tissue. What we're missing is the spark, the flame, the eternal dancing, sparkling, fiery, eternal, infinite flame that we are. We're, the, we're energy. <laughs> Even the material stuff is, is energy. 
Hence the molecules of emotion and what heals and what makes the body work better is to love it and be kind to it. Because spirit comes in through emotions. Again, this is a bit of an aside. But since we're talking about choosing choices, maybe we could uh, foreshadow a little bit choosing to talk about the effect of loving kindness on your body as well as the influence on other people. Um, we always know love heals, but why? And what what even is love? What does that mean? So worry is destructive. Fear is destructive. You worry about being sick, you get sick. You get sicker, you stay sick. You scare the bejesus out of these little cells, which are conscious, not to mention the molecules. We don't know if molecules are conscious. That's another debate. But we have overwhelming evidence that every single cell is conscious. It doesn't need a neuron. It doesn't need spinal fluid. It doesn't need a nervous system. A single cell, like, remember high school biology, amoeba, paramecium, those little single-cell critters. Cells even smaller than that. A platelet, bone marrow. They're aware on some super, super elementary level. They're not thinking the way we think or the way an animal thinks or even a plant. Venus flytrap, how does it know to swallow the fly? They're conscious, they're aware. How does a plant turn toward the sun and track it across the sky and fold up at night, open up in the morning? That's awareness, that's consciousness. But where we are different as human beings is this ability to choose. It happens in the frontal lobes and you practice with any meditation. Every meditation is a practice of paying attention to what actually is truly, clearly, deeply, without judgment in the present moment. It'll change your life. It already has. You're here. Yippee.